0: the Bane free radio hour
1: on the podcast fury born from the ashes of destruction a far-flung colony world resists challenges provokes and prevails against a corrupt earth government and an AI and his boy adventure across the solar system. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. This week, we bring you Josh Hayes' conversation with Hank Davis, Sarah A. Hoyt, Robert A. Hoyt, and Jacob Hollow about the new anthology, Time Troopers. Time Troopers is a collection of classic reprints and new stories of military time travel, which Davis co-edited with Christopher Rocchio. But first, the news. The May mass market paperbacks have arrived. Let's take a look. First up, Governor by David Weber and Richard Fox. Six billion dead, one man to stop the killing. The Terran Republic, the Terran League, genocidal enemies. Members of the 500 don't care. They are the social elite of the heart worlds, light years from any threat of attack. Rear Admiral Terrence Murphy is of the 500. There is no end to how high he can rise in the Republic's power structure. But the powers that be have miscalculated, for Terrence Murphy is a man of honor. He intends to stop the killing. Terence will end 56 years of bloodshed and slaughter, and hell itself rides with him. Next, we have an anthology of Freehold stories edited by series creator Michael Z. Williamson. It's Freehold Defiance. The UN has invaded the freehold of grain, a bastion of libertarian government in a galaxy of authoritarianism. Grain must form an organized force from the shattered remnants of their military and from grimly determined, but under-equipped and outnumbered insurgents. Their war is for their very way of life. They'll do everything and anything to stop this invasion using whatever means are available. They mean to make the enemy suffer, physical wounds heal, but defiance, defiance is to the death, or victory. Stories by Kevin J. Anderson and Kevin Eikenberry, Michael Z. Williamson, and more. And finally, The Goodell Operation by James L. Cambius. A droid and his boy in the 10th millennium, Daslac is an AI with a problem. Its favorite human, a young man named Z, is in love with a woman who never existed. But in the 10th millennium, a billion worlds circle the sun, home to a quadrillion beings. Z is convinced she's out there somewhere. Then Z helps Adya, a girl, but definitely not his dream girl, escape a gang of crooks. To get away, the pair must join the hunt for the Godel trigger, a legendary weapon left over from the ancient war between humans and machines. Now Daslak must aid in the search, keep Z's love life on the right track, and make sure that nobody discovers the real secret of the Goodell trigger, for that would spell doom for men, machines, and the solar system itself. That's Governor, Freehold, Defiance, and the Goodell operation, out now in mass market paperback. And that's it for the news. Now for our conversation about Time Troopers.
2: Hello and welcome to the interview section of the Bain Free Radio Hour. I am your host, Josh Hayes. And this week we are talking with authors uh, of the Time Troopers anthology, uh, author and editor Hank Davis, authors Sarah Hoyt and Robert A. Hoyt and Jacob Hollow joined the conversation today. Um, I had the privilege of reading each of these stories. They were phenomenal. Um course i didn't read all of the stories in the collection but if they all have half of the uh very different and unique storytelling uh elements that these stories contain i think the whole collection is phenomenal uh hank you've done a really good job with chris kind of wrangling um authors that bring a very unique and different view to time travel some of which um in your own story you're kind of uh, different <laughs> that doesn't necessarily actually equate to time travel, but I like the approach to it. Um, so starting off the conversation, let's talk about that. Um, you worked with Chris, Christopher Ruccio to uh, put together this collection for Bane. Um, what was that like? And what was your original thoughts when starting this uh, project?
3: Well, this <clears throat> Excuse me, this was a little unusual because I wasn't in the office at any time while we were working on it. Because I said, I at the time I was 76 and I haven't been in the main office for two years because of COVID, hmm. and everyone was afraid I would catch it, so it was all done online entirely. And uh we had the usual troubles we always uh, I've never able to get all the stories I want uh Christopher at the time also was uh uh preparing to become a f- freelance, full time freelance writer, but he was finishing up this anthology, so he had a lot of balls in the air on the other hand i I wasn't in the office, so I just had this one ball in the air. <laughs> Uh as usual, there were writers I couldn't get, and I was really surprised and very pleased when I was able to get in touch with uh, Van Valt's widow and her daughter, who were delighted to let me use his story. I wanted to use his stories. I'm a big Van Valt fan. I wanted to use his stories in ear- earlier anthologies, but the, the agent was uncomforting. So, uh, note to anthologists if, if agents are in cooperative, try to get in touch with the real people.
2: <laughs> nice. and Go around them. <laughs> yeah. But, uh,
3: anyway, this one came out a lot closer to what I wanted than uh, some others have. Uh, the problem with the Space Pirate Anthology was I thought it came out somewhat shorter than I wanted. Uh, I can't say that about this one. This actually turned out lo- a little longer than I expected. Uh, getting close to 500 pages. But I think it's all 500 good pages.
2: Indeed. Um, I know that some of the, the authors uh, have passed that you were able to, to get in the, the collection. Um, some of the authors I've never read. Um, and some of the authors... Uh, I was surprised like Heinlein obviously. Uh, um, and, uh, what I thought was interesting is the, the wide array of, well of all the anthologies I've read for Bane, the wide array of perspectives on a very specific, uh, element like time travel. Like it, that's very specific. It's not like it's a sci-fi anthology. It's a time travel anthology. And, and, uh, um, you know, sometimes you go into to reading different stories and they all kind of sound the same or they all kind of had the, the same type of elements. And every single one that I read um, kind of approached it from a different angle. Um, was there anything when you were kind of corralling these authors around that you asked of the authors or that you were like, hey, can we do different things? Because they really came out very different.
3: Uh, well, the living authors, uh, actually, that was mostly handled by Christopher. But I don't okay. believe he asked for anything in particular. Uh, just said to the authors, uh, well, in the case of, of uh, Mr. Solo, uh, sorry, <laughs> Mr. Holo, I'm thinking of the man from buckle, sorry. Uh, in the case of Mr. Holo, we did ask if he wanted to do a story set in that universe because I had read the first two books of the series. And it was where the novels would fit the theme. We weren't, of course, going to put one of the novels in there. And he came up with a uh, nice one, which is uh, somewhat different from the novels, and it's a a pretty humorous story. And it's always good to have a humorous story, since uh, some of the stories are kind of grim. Uh, Indeed. There's some dark humor, for instance, in the Heinlein you mentioned, but it's really a grim story in a pretty uh, depressing uh, universe. Oh, uh, yeah. we Christopher were here, he could talk about dealing with the writers who are living. Uh, mostly, I, I just pointed out uh, yeah, let's see if we can get this one. Let's see if we can get that one. And I read uh, I don't know, uh, probably several thousand science fiction stories in the last 60 or so years when I probably should have been out, I don't know, making money or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I just uh, turn on my memory and think, yeah, that would fit. Yeah, that would fit. Yeah, that would fit. In fact, there was a, there was another anthology, which is now about 30 years of the past called uh, Time Wars, which I took a look at to see if there's anything I wanted to reuse, and it turned out I did uh, reuse the Paul Anderson story, the Linda East. But I wasn't too bothered that a 30-year-old paperback-only anthology, has, which has probably been out print for at least 25 years, would duplicate the contents that could only annoy really uh, fanatical collectors. Of course, I used to be one
2: of those, but <laughs> there aren't very many of us. Um, you know, while we're, uh, on, on your corner, as it were, let's talk about evading history because I thought that that, uh, take on, um, kind of time travel because they, they know what's happening. Um, uh, but also it's, it's something that, uh, is completely different from the, the other stories wherein it's, it's different pocket universes and, and, uh, uh multiverses, if you will um it's kind of that um story element is kind of coming back into uh favor with uh the marvel universe and all that stuff but uh what what with your take on it and the and the the president uh, i really enjoyed the uh the uh familiarity between the two and and um uh the ending was very bleak but also kind of hopeful at the same time um do you want to talk about that story
3: yeah well of course uh I don't have any problem with having a female president. Uh, I'm just leery of some of the ones who want to be president, (laughs) but uh, without naming names. Uh, So I thought I would have a female president, and, of course, uh, I have a thing about redheads, so, of course, she's a redhead. Sure. (laughs) And I made her her a veteran since we need more presidents who are veterans and uh, fewer who are draft dodgers. Not that there's a draft anymore. There's registration, I understand. But no draft so far. Yeah. Uh, let's see what happens with Putin. But uh, we don't have time to have a draft. But you, you probably need to edit this stuff out. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's all, right. It's all uh, right. Anyway, it occurred to me that, a, a, uh, that when two people get together from alternate universes, uh, it's some, be- some people have them if they get together they're going to explode which I didn't see a reason for that to happen but I, I figured it would if you're traveling from to an alternate universe and apparently alternate universes may actually exist though if there's any way to get from one to the other there's no sign that there is that. I just figured it would take power unless you switched something with your duplicate, and I thought, hmm, why should she switch duplicates? Because she's dying, and she, needs, and she needs to change the future in her continuum. And I hope I was uh, subtle enough about this. And she picks an alternate universe where she happens to know that the president is about to be killed uh, in a nuclear attack by an enemy on Washington. So she picks that with the switch with. So she's dying anyway and, and I hope I have the dialogue because you when you get two people like that together first you've got to convince them that uh, one of them is not crazy <laughs> and then you got to convince them there's a good reason for doing something that's completely weird and anyway I don't want to give any more of the story away particularly this
2: is only about I think five pages long or something but uh, well, and I was gonna say that, that that even Sorry. the the amount of the amount of story that you fit into those five pages um, a lot like for me, I find it really hard to write a short story because I'm always writing more than the story needs, and even the the the, the lines the few lines that uh, when they're talking about her husband. Um, you know, the one that's alive and the one that's dead, and they have the comment about he doesn't like, uh, he still doesn't like being called what uh, Al, uh, Alfred or Alfred. He, he's uh, named
3: after Alfred E. V. Vote, by the way.
2: Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I, I thought it was Alfred the, uh, the butler, like, cause that, the yeah. the, the, yeah, the comment about the butler made sense to me, but, uh, but the, that interaction between the two actually showed a lot of, uh, character between, like, the, the subtle knowledge that each have of each other's life even being different uh, in different universes was really cool I thought okay
3: uh, okay thank That's, you uh,
2: oh sorry what did go ahead you had something else uh, I was just to gonna
3: say uh, if if I hadn't been trying to make the shortest story as short sure as possible I might have put more background in but I tried to indicate all of it
2: well no I and I thought that, that it was fine I didn't I I didn't think that the story lacked anything I thought that it was uh uh complete in in its in and of itself with without really having any extras I thought it worked worked fine uh, so well done um okay now, now you all talk to the real writers the, <laughs> uh let's uh, let's go to Sarah and Robert and and uh, uh, talk about um, is it, uh, Lost of free time, I think, uh, is the 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 title, and this one uh, I we I said in the the pre show that I I read them twice, and this one made a lot more sense to me the second time around, um, and uh, the the first time I got I got about halfway through, and I'm like I, I'm confused here because there was characters that i i was missing and then when i read it the second time i was like okay i get it now it makes way more sense now um this i mean this uh centers around uh a civilization basically in an encapsulated time uh bubble if you want to say uh um and i thought that that aspect of time travel was very interesting because they're not actually going anywhere they're just experiencing time differently um Uh, Sarah or Robert, do you want to take the helm and and talk about the kind of the acceptance? If I may,
4: we were in the middle of a move. And I had, oh, I I got Barbarella as a side gig, dropped Barbarella script. So I had two Barbarella scripts due. And we were quite literally in the middle of a move. And Robert kept shooting ideas at me. (laughs) <laughs> and I have to say that this one didn't make any sense when he first shot it at me. And then he explained <laughs> and I went, Oh, I get it. That's very clever, but like idea. Okay. Um,
5: yeah, so I ended up um I think drafting the sort of the first draft of this. Yeah. Um and mom provided a lot of the kind of fleshing out, Uh, there were definitely some things that kind of influenced that there, a little bit of that sort of entirely self-contained society. Um, I think there's a little bit of a flavor of, I think it's Orphans of the Stars from Heinlein. There is like a reference to Sixth Column in there, actually, and also the entire project itself kind of has some um, resonance with Sixth Column, the the whole point of this sort of self-encapsulated society and why it was set up in the first place um, was essentially as an advanced or as an advanced research program as, as sort of a way of grappling between nations where you're trying to find a way of like getting ahead technologically, which is something that nations are always trying to do in like warfare and really giving yourself an advantage by essentially putting your research staff in a place where like 150 years can pass just for them and they can, you know, as, as is referenced in the story, it's like, they can, you know, take it to the level of warfare where it's like guns versus bow and arrow. Right. With a relatively short amount of time passing externally. The other thing I kind of like about this idea, cause this, when I was shooting ideas off mom, um, the thing I, I think I told you when I presented this to you is this idea of like an entirely self encapsulated sort of where time is passing faster. I think actually is less likely to entirely break the laws of physics as we know them. I don't know exactly how you would set this thing up, but <laughs> but just based on the fact that there is variability in how fast time passes due to gravity and et cetera, um, I think it, I think there's more plausibility to setting this up than a lot of like things that we're not really sure we can currently do, like travel back in time and this is one of the reasons this has been an obsession of mine for a little bit and i've been trying to find a way to work this into a story with i don't know maybe that maybe the hopes that eventually some some scientist will be inspired by reading it and be like oh wait no wait i think we can do that actually As wouldn't be it be weird
2: if they thing. did that and, and the the uh the technology that developed was then called the hoyt effect
4: <laughs> well, considering his younger brother has been promising as a time machine made entirely of Kinex for almost 20 years now.
5: Uh, Imagine the instructions set. Was... That... I think it was a
4: ploy to get us buy him Kinex. Um I don't think he has bought he has read this story yet, Robert. Maybe I should make him.
5: Try making Marshall do anything. Oh I know, I know. <laughs>
2: I, uh, you know, there was actually a couple aspects that I thought that that played with time even more so than than the the kind of encapsulated time that you're talking about. But like the the time bomb, I thought was really cool, and then the the time grenades or the the um, uh, I don't want to give it away, but the the weapon at the end uh, that basically solved their problem with the second team. Uh, and them being really dead, I was like, that's really cool. Um, And plays with time manipulation inside time manipulation and how that affects different things.
5: Yeah, so interestingly, one of the other stories I had bounced off, mom. that was actually kind of incorporating something else because another story I had bounced off mom had originally been the idea of, like just straight up weaponized time. And actually a little bit of what I think inspires me there, believe it or not, is um, one of my favorite books is Thief of Time by uh, Terry Pratchett. Um, and in that book, they have these spinners that actually manipulate time. and one of the things that is like shown as a demonstration of how they work is, you know, they like throw an apple seed and then turn it into a tree like, Immediately. There are a lot of when I really started thinking about that, it's like there are a lot of problems with that because I was going, it's like, well, how do I get like all of the like water and nutrients that would need to happen in that? Because it's not just the time that goes oh, into right, it. right, right. But but it's like really plausible as a weapon, because in that instance, you know, it's essentially like, OK, well, 10,000 years pass in the center of your chest. Probably that will be lethal.
6: Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. probably <You're> nice. <laughs> <laughs>
5: there's
2: a small chance. I, I think small you're being chance.
6: a little modest there.
5: <laughs> if it's if it's not, we've discovered something fantastic. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um well it was it's really cool because it, it kind of goes from like the the initial jump of the uh you know the the first several generations that are in that the the character meets and then it obviously it jumps yes. again and that that second jump at the end of the book um the um growth of technology should we say is very interesting and I like that it's way out there you know what I mean like it's nothing that you would recognize as something that we would see as, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I wouldn't wanna wanna give away the ending of the book, but I was unable to not remember Gort for the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still in that last scene.
5: Yeah, I. and I see the movie, that will make no
3: sense at all, I'm afraid. (laughs)
5: Um, I, I was really going for something where it's just like, this is, whoa, like very different.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think that, I think it works because, you know, in the, in, in the framework of your story, when you're talking about what they're doing, that's specifically what they were sent there to do. And they did what they were supposed to do. It just didn't work out the way everybody thought it was going to work out. <laughs> Uh, so I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was a good story. Uh, like I said, it 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 took me the second read through to actually make like it made sense in my mind the second time through. But I, I thought it was really well written and uh, a fun ride. Uh, okay, let's talk about um, Doctor Quiet. Uh, and I have not read the uh, other Gordian novels, so this was uh, my first. Uh, stepping into that universe. Uh, let me just say that um, coming into it blind and uh, and uh, from what I can uh, uh, pull out of the story, what I gleaned was uh, androids hate spicy food. Um, and, uh, I know that's not technically accurate. I know it's not, but that was amazing to me. And that whole sequence was hilarious. And I read that sequence over and over again because it was (laughs) really, really great.
6: Oh, thank you. So, um, uh, the way, uh, Dr. Quiet came about, um, Hank and, uh, Christopher Rocchio, uh, they approached me and David Weber. Uh, about uh, writing a short story um, set in the, uh, the the Gordian Division series, which is our time travel slash uh, multiverse shenanigans uh, series, um, and uh, David's reply was, "I'm slammed, but I I've got this collaborator. Uh, go go go, talk to him." And so I. Uh, I proposed a, uh, my my first thought was actually to um, uh, write a a short story uh, for uh, Susan Cantrell, who isn't, um, she has a blink and you'll miss it scene in the first uh, Gordian Division novel, uh, The Gordian Protocol, where she is unceremoniously blown out into space, but (laughs) because we deal with timey-wimey stuff, she gets to come back. Yeah. but she's actually a very, very um, uh, major character in the third book, which comes out in October. Um, and I thought it would be cool to see a uh, like an early uh, a mission early from her career. And I started thinking about okay, what, what kind of story do I want to put together here? And you know, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest: um, short fiction is not really where my comfort zone is. Um, and I'm, I'm much more comfortable with say, you know, uh, you a know, hundred thousand words.
2: Yeah. Um, same,
6: you know, cr- cramming, you know, a complete story into, you know, five to 10. It's like, okay, uh, I'll give it my best shot. Um, <laughs> and I was thinking about, you know, the direction to take it. And, you know, I, I've been, uh, you know, looking at some of, uh, David's, Recent fiction and how it, it makes the readers cry, and I'm like, you know, I'm not really as good at making readers cry as David Weber is. Why don't I take a different approach? And I, I then decided that, well, how about approaching it from a comedic standpoint, having a light action comedy? Um, and uh, Susan's <laughs> adventures against the, the terrorist mastermind Doctor Quiet uh, came came to be.
2: It was uh, it was great that the tone of the story was set up right at the outset with the uh, (laughs) the the with with her missing head (laughs) and uh, looking through the eyes of a grenade launcher. I was like, that's amazing that she's no, but no context at all. You just start the main character not having a head was great.
6: Yeah. Yeah, and and her her she's basically looking at her. Superior officer threw a grenade launcher. The grenade launcher is pointed right at him, It's just like <laughs> looking at. It's like, "Have you unloaded that thing?" And she's like, "Oh, there, there's no need. I discharged all the shots back on the mission."
2: <laughs> or well, he... and it, you know, it's it's. <clears throat> I like one of the 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 tough things to do in short fiction. I think is to have that like circular uh, closure with an idea at the beginning, and then when you get to the end. It it kind of has that, that closure for the reader, but also um, I like short fiction because you can be ambiguous about the ending and it doesn't have to be like a, a, a really pretty picture painted and it's fine. Uh, I thought that you did this well. Both aspects of what I just said, I thought you did well in the story. I thought there was a good closure because she learned from the failure of the first mission to the second mission, and then also you end this the the story basically where that story I think really begins, like between Doctor Quiet and her, and and obviously there's a whole other universe that's in the stories, but it 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 leaves it open to a lot, and I thought that the way you did that was very well done.
6: Well, I thank you. About fifty percent of that was by accident.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the uh, okay. if, if it
6: if it hadn't come to be I would have been like, you know, maybe I should try again before I submit to Hank and Christopher. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what uh the the spicy food thing. I I've got to bring that up again because okay. that whole sequence is hilarious. What what was going through your writer mind when you're sitting down going, I'm going to make this Uh, This whole scene, because it didn't just stop with her drinking soda out of the thing. It continued on through a whole other sequence.
6: Yeah, um, so that actually, um, there's, uh, it's kind of a a little bit of throwaway humor in book three, uh, The Janice File, where uh, Susan is dealing with her her new partner, um, a, uh, a detective, Isaac Cho, and um isaac loves spicy food and um so the topic of of spicy food comes up and it's like oh no i i do not you know susan's like i do not eat spicy food anymore It, it weirds me out it's one of the few ways i can actually still feel pain because she has the full synthetic body at that point um and so i had that like notion floating around in my head and I'm like, I don't know, the scene just sort of started writing itself. And, and then, you know, she's like underneath the drink drink machine, just, you know, guzzling. And then she like fills up, a you know, uh, um, a glass and goes to the briefing. And she's trying to sneak, you know, uh, sips from her.
2: That from whole water. thing, I just pictured her with one of those big Slurpee cups. Yeah. Like 40 yeah. ounce with a straw sitting in this really important meeting going, <laughs>
6: That, that is exactly the picture I was going for.
2: <laughs>
6: and, and oh. you know, the, 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 uh, the captain, um, he's, you know, he he, he keeps hearing the sound and because she's got this super, you know, she's super fast. She's able to sneak it under the, her desk before he can see. And yeah, it, it just wrote wrote itself.
2: <laughs> yeah. That was great. Very good. Uh and you said that the the la- the the third book in the series, the Janus Files coming out in October. Yes. Um was it easier for you? I don't I don't know how much sort short fiction you've written. It sometimes it's easier for me to write in a universe that's already established, um, but at the same time um present certain challenges because you you know you don't want to give certain things away, or you, you you need to fall in uh with already established uh canon um how how was that when writing this was it pretty i mean it it takes place significantly before the other events in the novels
6: yeah i mean it takes place you know before uh the gordian protocol yeah um i think close to 10 years uh, before the, uh, the first book in the series. Um, it, uh, it made it easier for me in this case. Uh, I can certainly see how you know writing you know, in the existing setting with existing characters in short fiction can sometimes be easier and sometimes be harder. But um, the character already had a very vivid voice in my head. And you know, once I sort of decided on the overall um, structure of you know the, the hunt for the terrorist, and you know the and the going with a, a humorous approach, it, it I was able to uh, you know crank it out pretty quickly. And I, I was actually the the uh, the one that's in the uh, uh, the anthology is very close to my first draft, like ninety nine percent there.
2: Very cool. Uh, I, Sarah and Robert, I realized that uh, I skipped right over um, some uh, the next projects you guys have coming out. I know what Jacob is, is coming out in October. Um, you mentioned, Sarah, you mentioned the Odd Magics, uh, Tales from the Lost, and then... For the um, Lost, yes. For the Lost. That and is then...
4: out, and uh, Rhodes is out, Um the next Schefter series book, Bowl of Red, should be out in a couple of months. I'm not exactly sure of the timing yet. Mm. Um, I have a newsletter on Substack called okay. Schrodinger's Path. And, uh, well, they get inflicted a lot of very weird stuff. But but they definitely also get the release dates and what's coming out. Uh, <laughs> weird stuff, because whatever goes through my mind that morning, that time, I try not to go. I often do, but I try not to go more than a month without putting something up. So someday I wake up and go, it's been too long since I've sent the newsletter out. And then it's whatever is in my head.
5: How come dishwashers are only available in three names?
4: Right. <laughs> it's like, why don't we have robot dishwashers with arms like the ones in Clifford C. And
5: people will answer. So I don't because know. Because they load themselves with the dishes insane. and then like the cat.
2: Yeah. They go they go bonkers and your whole house ends up in the dishwasher. Yes. I did it. I woke up one morning, kind of like you're saying. I, I'm i horrible at sending out newsletters. And then I, I think has it been like six months since i've sent one out and then uh i i woke up and i for some reason hit the strong button on the coffee maker for the (laughs) not like it and i drank the whole pot not realizing that i had hit the strong brew and so by the end of the like the last cup i'm like what's wrong with my coffee and why is my i'm like tasting colors and stuff and then i I realized, oh, I'd hit the strong button. And I did a whole newsletter post on hitting the strong button and and seeing multiple uh, universes. And yeah, it was crazy. So I get it.
4: it. It will give you an impression of what our house is like, that our younger son routinely wakes up in the morning and says, I come from a parallel universe in which, and something completely stupid that he hadn't realized that changed about that Nice. So,
5: um, Josh, it sounds like I need some of whatever coffee you're drinking. <laughs> oh
6: yeah,
2: <laughs> it's great. It's great.
5: Um, Robert
4: and I don't have anything together that's actually moving forward because he's kind of busy and I'm busy. When he was in grad school, we used to go on these midnight drives about for coffee at the diner, about an hour away.
5: Not which, as good as your coffee <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, for sure.
4: Which was really dangerous because we came up with ideas. <laughs> so, so in the future somewhere there will be, and that that's the universe we used in um, Space Corsairs, and in the future there will be a series called Star Student which is sort of harry potter in space oh Uh, with science fiction bases and it's perhaps excessively free market friendly um uh, that will that will we don't know when because it depends on both of us having time but
2: ideas are the the bane of the writer's existence right
5: You can make the things a lot faster than you can write them. I tell you what.
2: Indeed.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. do tell me
6: about Oh, my gosh. I've got,
3: <laughs> I've got
2: notebooks full of ideas that will never come to fruition, I'm sure. And it always it, it always, uh, it always uh, makes me laugh and then cringe a little bit when somebody's like, I've got an idea for a, a story you can write. And I'm like, dude, I've, I've, I've got millions of them, but I can't do anything with. I don't need yours. Take a number. <laughs> yeah. I you know to
4: tell my fans when they start, it's like, you know what I want? Shut up. Show up now! Show <laughs> up while you're alive.
5: Exactly. exactly what I need. More things I don't have time for. I could. I just woke up this morning thinking that's exactly what I need. The,
2: yes, exactly. Thank you very much for that very helpful idea. I appreciate so, that.
5: So what I'm hearing
4: is I still need to get K-Nex for my younger son, and maybe he'll extend time for us. Yes, and right. Yes.
2: Now. Or you know, just like create a time turner. And then we could just we could just uh, you know. Write uh, I'm more.
4: convinced someone's stealing my time. <laughs>
5: I've moved out. I have no. <laughs> no, nope, nope. you're okay. Can't, can't paint me. It's probably the cats.
2: Uh Let's shift gears a little bit and and uh, and kind of talk from a, a writer standpoint on short stories. I've I've done. A handful, uh, I assume you guys have done a handful. Hank has uh, read uh, a crap ton and then done several anthologies. What do you guys uh, think about when uh, you look at short fiction, the, the most challenging thing for you to accomplish in a story, in a, in a, in a short 10,000 words? What do you think? Sarah, do you want to take that first?
4: Make them short. Um, I'm a natural novelist. Uh huh. However, I have published. I haven't counted. I think it's a hundred and forty short stories, something like that. Wow! Because I thought I had to. <laughs>
1: um,
4: he, he, I, by the time I tried to break into the field, we once sat down at World Fantasy. Yes, we were all drunk, and there were about twenty of us, and we calculated the chances relative to what. What was being published of a new author publishing a professional novel or a short story? Now, there are a lot more because there's indie, but this was back in 2004 or so. And you were like four times more likely to sell a professional novel out of the blue than a short story. However, (laughs) I didn't. Oh, yeah, there were more openings. However, I didn't know that. And I didn't know anyone wrote. And I read all the books that had been written, oh, in the 60s and 70s, saying you want to get in, you have to start writing half-penny short stories. And, you know, and you work your way up. Right. And A, I couldn't write short stories. And B, the path no longer existed. It's a... Uh, an example of mind over matter. That that's exactly the path I followed. I sold half penny award short stories for a year, and then I sold, you know, a penny award, and eventually I sold professional rates. I sold a novel the same year, so you know. But because of that, I had learned to write short stories. Heaven help me! I took the Writer's Digest short story course. And it's actually solid because they give you the structure and they teach you what the short story idea is, or they did back then. And it's completely different from a novel idea. And what what I came out of it with, and I could be completely wrong, but that's how I do it, is short stories are more of a punchy unit of emotion than the novels whatever the emotion is you know fear or joy or humor or you know just humor by the way for me humor is much harder than making people cry making people (laughs) cry is easy humor is very very difficult and um so I always admire people can do humor Way back, Mike Resnick wanted me for an anthology with humor, and I didn't have anything. I gave him a vaguely smiley story, but it wasn't humor. So, um, but anyway, so what I have, I no longer use it because I have internalized it, but my first, like, 20 published short stories were done to a template. Mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't go over and I wouldn't, it was, I had a very strict template on how to do it. Um, So it also helps if you have a future history, which I also thought was mandatory because Heinlein had one so i actually have two i have two very exact future histories which make it easier because you look at the future history and you go i can put a story there that fits the parameters Mm -hmm. um none of my stories involve time none of my future histories involve time travel though so you know that's a little harder
2: go ahead robert
5: um yeah I, i I'm very much the opposite in that I'm, I actually started in short stories. I'm kind of a natural short story writer. I find novels more of a struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I don't know that I have, because of that, this is like often, often the case. There's, I think there's a, uh, a technique or a school of thought, and I want to say it's called the Cambridge method, where you like detail someone to a subject that they really dislike. Um in order to like advance that particular field, because if a person doesn't have a natural affinity for it, they like really have to get good at exactly how it's done. And so I don't have as well articulated of a philosophy for it. Um, but for me, I think that the thing I always try to do is just come up with something that's like interesting, like like a little bit different and like has um. Uh, has a certain, I, I would say I would say it has a punchiness to it or, or kind of catches your attention. It's really, for me, it's just mostly, do I read through the thing and go, it's like, did I make something entertaining? Right. Um, and the thing that's nice about a short story is because you don't have to like, keep track of a whole bunch of different like arcs over a long period of time and sort of, you don't have to have it like follow through a bunch of kind of ups and downs. You can really have it just be like intense and like um, engaging for the period of time that you're reading it and then, like it it lasts as long as it lasts. Um, Sort of like a dessert, you know? Like intense, sweet, to the point.
4: If I may, because my sons grew up in science fiction, Robert, uh, by the, which by the way, gets Robert in arguments on various social media with people like Alexander Purnell, who also grew up
5: in science fiction because they will have completely opposite <laughs> takes on something. Not about what you think. We had, we had like a long running argument about like a funny cartoon I made of, um, there's, there's a fruit fly called Drosophila that is used as a model system, and I drew one in like a red evening dress, um, and called it a supermodel system. Uh, <laughs> I, I got into an argument with me over the color of the eyes on the fruit fly. Uh,
3: <laughs> uh, the hard science approach, I see.
2: Yes,
4: but there is there is a different. I I have noticed that in various of my friends' kids were usually older than my kids, and. Uh, because, But because both Robert and his brother, and his brother is now starting to write, by the way, so the Hoyts are a quadruple threat. Nice. But um, he, what I've noticed is that what they think is an absolutely old idea, you're like, no, no, that's amazing. It's like a twist on this and that, and it's great. Really? Don't you think it's too bad? It's just old. It's like... <laughs> You grew up with this. You're, you're aiming at the public that didn't live their entire life immersed in science fiction tropes at the breakfast table. So so it's a different mindset. Most of the time I spend going, don't go too far. People won't understand that. They have no idea what you're talking about. So.
5: There there are a couple of things that I've written and shown to mom. And when I say when I say the cell pirate story, she'll know exactly what I mean. Um, where she's like, You have gone way off into the weeds, this is bordering on experimental. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So
4: uh, well, the cell pirate doesn't have senses. It's a cell. It's a sentient
5: know, it, cell. It does. It does have senses. It's just that they're entirely unique senses to the thing. <laughs> <They're chemical. laughs>
4: so the voice. I mean, it's it's a story, but but you're in an actual completely alien mind, so you have no idea what you're reading.
2: You know, actually, some sometimes those are the the coolest uh presentations in that aspect of absolutely not human uh the only story that i think that i've ever read where the aliens were definitely not anthropomorphic was uh peter f hamilton's pandora star and there's an alien in that book that when you read it it has no human characteristics it doesn't even understand what humans like do the speech all of that stuff it's all alien to that and you get it from the perspective of the alien Uh, and i thought that was fantastic i'd never seen that done before but to that's really difficult to pull off pulling off senses that are not human thought processes that are not human like even down to um like consciousness or morals or something like that that an alien just wouldn't have any understanding of at all
5: I'm fond
4: of saying I don't believe in aliens, so I don't write them. It's not that I don't believe in aliens. It's that I think if there is a truly alien consciousness, it could coexist with us and we wouldn't be aware of them
5: and vice versa. So, Well, and I I will say, too, that kind of what brought me back, because I had like a, a phase where I was writing things that were sort of a little bit off the wall and kind of what brought me back from that was actually that thing that I was talking about earlier, which is like the most important thing is that it be entertaining. And I'm writing for an audience of humans. So,
2: right. <laughs> well,
5: I, I assume I am. Yeah. Uh, so. You could know, be
2: lizard people.
5: It, it, well, yeah, but I mean, how much money are you going to make selling Justin to, to Zuckerberg? Am I right? Like.
2: <laughs> True. True. Uh, Jacob, let's uh, go to you with the, the question of the, the challenging aspects of writing short stories.
6: So, um, like I said before, um, short fiction is not my comfort zone, so no one should take advice from me. But since you did ask the question, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I approach uh, short fiction uh, much the same way that I approach long fiction, um, just because it's the tool set that I know. Um <clears throat> and am comfortable with. So I um, plot out, uh, before I write, fairly extensively. E- even, even for a short story, I don't just jump into it. I plot out all the beats. Um, I mean, for like a, a, a novel length, I'll normally have like say, you know, 15 to 20,000 words uh, outline uh, that I put together, uh, before I start writing. And, you know, I, for, um, like a five to 10,000 word, uh, short story, you know, I might have, you know, a one to 2000 word long outline that I put together. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm an outliner, I'm a planner and that's, that, you know, having, going into, you know, um, writing with a plan makes me more comfortable and so that's how i approach it um and you know some so i guess you know I, I may have been fibbing a little bit about the uh you know the things coming about by accident <laughs> it, it went according to plan actually
2: well but i mean uh, i i i'm a huge plotter and um a lot of you know my other show, we, we talk predominantly about writing and, and different aspects of writing and craft. And you know, one of the biggest arguments uh, or, or long-term debates is whether you're a planner or a pantser, right? And a lot of people yeah. are like, I don't want to outline because then I lose the experience of creation on the fly or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't plot the outline. You pants the outline yeah. and then you use that to write the book.
6: Yeah, I mean the uh, the the process of creation uh, is what goes into the outline for me. Yeah, um, and it's also you know kind of a, a place where I can you know measure twice but cut once, so to speak, mm. where I can you know with a much smaller total word count iron out issues before you know I've got a you know I'm sitting on a hundred thousand words. And I need to rewrite 20,000 of them. You know, let's, let's, <laughs> right.
5: yeah.
6: let's nip it in the bud before uh, it becomes a really big problem.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'm right there with you.
4: So what I'd like to say is that these things change. They change over the life of a writer. And sometimes they change with the book. I have written books that were absolutely plotted beginning to end. I knew exactly every turn. That was fine. And I've written books that refused to be plotted. (laughs) I would plot them out every step, and then the chapter would go sideways. And I'd be sitting there going, yeah, that's the only way it can go, but now the rest of the plot is useless. (laughs) And I had books that During that phase, I had a lot of books that came out in three parts, and then I had to make the parts fit together, and that was really difficult. And then I had at least two books that came out the chapter at the time, and I literally couldn't plot them, and that was terrifying. And I thought I was going nuts because the feeling is like driving a, month, a twisty mountain road at night and you can't see where you're going. Mm. And you wake up in the morning and you have the chapter in your head and it's like, okay, I have a chapter. And you have no clue. And those were some of my most plotted books for any reader, which is weird. Oh, and yeah. I, in the middle of this and feeling like I was completely crazy. I came across an Agatha Christie uh, article talking about the exact same thing. Normally she wrote the books in her head before typing them in, but she had two that would not let her see past the next chapter. And she used the same metaphor. And I was going, okay, if I'm insane, she's insane. She was also <laughs> insane. Now granted, this is the woman lost two weeks, but you know, so, Indeed, we're all a
2: little bit insane.
4: And I heard Terry Pratchett talk about the same thing that a book had changed on him. So he needed the closure and he had no clue how it was going to close or how the
5: great battle was going to be. So I felt better. <laughs> That's, that
2: sounds like a good asylum to be in. Uh,
6: yes, 100%. <laughs> the, hey, I'm in it.
2: Yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say that. Um, that experience of like needing to have the, sort of the thing entirely, oh, pardon me, entirely written in your head um, is the way that I feel about most short stories that I work on. They're kind of like an encapsulated sort of like machine or mechanism. I apologize to your listeners who have heard me bump my microphone twice now. Um, if they, they're sort of like an encapsulated like little machine in my head and like all of the bits sort of have to fit together. Um, so it's, it's almost like there's like a feeling to how it's like when it's all put together, it's like, you know, when a machine is put together and you turn the crank, how it's supposed to work. Right. Um, it's kind of the same thing with a short story, but there is, I guess there is one beyond just relating a general experience of what it's like to write short stories. There is one thing I can actually say, which is helpful and has been the product of a lot of editorial advice I've gotten over the years. Um, specifically with genre fiction, which is probably useful for the people who listen to this, um, I find that the urge sometimes to over-explain these settings that you'll be creating, because often if you're not using a pre-existing universe, you're going to have to ground people pretty quickly in a setting that might be very foreign to their current set of experiences, and you might have to orient them to a whole bunch of new technologies or magics or what have you. Um, and the urge to over-explain is so common, and sometimes I think that well, obviously it's it's good to hindline things in. That's a fairly banal statement, and and when I say hindlining for the like one person who doesn't know what that means, that's that's to explain something through context cues rather than by sitting them down in front of a chalkboard and saying this is how space travel works. It was invented, right. um, and. And I would say that too, if you, the thing that works in your favor is if you can't explain something through context cues in the context of a short story, there's an excellent chance the readers don't really need to know it Mm. because they don't, it doesn't, they don't interact with it enough in the course of the story for it to actually be like clear what it is. Right. that kind of works in your favor. And I know it's always a temptation. You come up with this cool world and you're like, I'm going to tell them everything about it, but like you've got six or 8,000 words. So you kind of have to pare it down to the stuff that relates most closely to what's in the story.
2: I actually find it a lot more important to outline short stories than outlining novels because there's, you know, in a novel you can do things in, 10,000 words and then flow around to another 10,000 words to have something else done. But in a short story, to have, you know, the impact or even just to make sure that you're telling the right story that you want to tell, you need to really make sure that you're getting in the things that you need to get in, uh, in the space that you have them. Uh, Hank, we haven't, uh, heard from you yet on the this, uh, aspect of what, uh, what is challenging for you about writing, uh, short stories, um, aside from obviously physical challenges, what, uh, what is something that you think of when you sit down to write that, that you have to, uh, that you have learned to, um, incorporate in your writing to make a better short story?
3: Uh, well, of course I, I had the worst possible start back in 1967. I sold the first two stories I ever sent out. And that was it for about three years. <laughs> well, one was it If, a magazine that doesn't exist anymore. It used to be a companion to Galaxy, which also doesn't exist. Uh, both of them edited with the great Fred Poe. The other one was an Analog, and that was really bad for the ego. Um, I, I think the main problem is I would get an idea And usually the idea would be about the ending, so I knew how I had an ending, so I had to figure out how to start and how to get there, and how to explain what was happening in between. Uh, This works all right for really short stories. If you try even a novelette, you may have to uh, paper the walls a lot more, and add some more bricks and mortar. Uh, for instance, one of the stories I thought of but did not try to write for Time Troopers would have involved what I had in mind were several high points in an ending. And uh, if I tried writing it, I would have had to come up with links to the high points in the ending. And also you need to not, with a short story, you could go from point A to point B in a straight line. In a novel, what you need to do is zigzag all over the place, generally, uh, particularly if you're writing a mystery, mm. but also for a science fiction story. But you need to incorporate new material at some point. It may not be new to you, but it will be new to the reader that will either shed light on something that went before that made them realize, oh, that was more complicated than I thought, or it will Turned out to the hero. Oh, this situation is really bad, and I thought I I was on top of it. Something like that. All this may be a reason why I've only actually written one novel that was also about the same time as those two short stories. Uh, It was rejected and rejected and rejected, and I always meant to rewrite it somehow, but I don't have it anymore. So forget that. (laughs) And at 78, I don't know if I'm ever going to try to write a novel uh the the advantage of short stories is uh you don't know, spend a lot of time on something that uh maybe nobody wants you True. may end up uh for personal experience uh i think i have for every story i ever sold uh, uh i think i wrote something like five that that no one wanted so this is this is not uh it it's not a, the way to a a Hollywood success story, but it's pretty much the way the real world is. Mm. Uh, Even more so now than then. Back then, there were something like uh, six or nine magazines on the newsstands, and now there's only three with some uh, other uh, uh, magazines that are somewhat semi-professional. That Mm -hmm. is, they They pay, they don't pay very much, and... And your friends and neighbors will never hurt them. Well, they may they may have seen analog in in a drugstore if if you're if they have to have a drugstore still sells magazines. A lot of them
2: don't anymore. Um, well, the the anthology is out now. It came out well last week.
1: It fifth.
3: came out
2: on the fifth, April fifth. Um, so think it was available uh, on. Well, it's on everywhere. I think uh, all the editions are out. If I can pull up this thing, not an audible yet. It doesn't look like, but uh, uh, paperback and uh, certainly ebook, uh, it's available. Um, Sarah and Robert and Jacob and Hank, thank you all for coming on the show and talking about your stories and uh, joining in on the conversation. It's always fun to to have a group of of uh, authors hanging out and and talking about similar stories and sharing their experiences and um uh, i appreciate you taking the time out of your afternoon to hang out with me today
6: thank you for having us thank you
2: yep thank Thank you. you Uh, We'll go back to uh, David and the rest of the podcast here in a minute, but make sure you go to uh, wherever your bookstore is on Amazon. Pick up Time Troopers. It's a a great collection. Uh, You won't be disappointed with any of the stories. Uh, Thank you for hanging out with us today on the Bane Free Radio Hour. I'm Josh Hayes, and we'll go back to David.
1: And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the Troft forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities
0: and what it truly meant to be a cobra. In addition to fire control, he said, the computer will have a set of combat reflexes programmed into it, reflexes that will not only include evasive movements, but such tricks as were demonstrated a few minutes ago. Put it all together—the hologram became a colorful puzzle as all the overlays reappeared—and you have the most deadly guerrilla warriors mankind has ever produced. He let the image stand a few seconds before switching it off and laying the comm board back on one of the chairs. As Cobras, you'll be on the leading edge of the counteroffensive strategy that I expect will ultimately push the troughs out of Dominion territory. But there'll be a definite cost included. I've already mentioned the military dangers you'll be facing. At this point, we can't even guess at what kind of casualty percentages there'll be, but I can assure you they'll be high. We'll need to do a lot of surgery on you, and surgery is never very pleasant. On top of that, A lot of what we put inside you will be there to stay. The laminae, for example, won't be removable, which requires you to keep the servos and nanocomputer as well. There'll undoubtedly also be problems we haven't even thought about yet. And as part of the first wave of cobras, you'll take the full brunt of any design glitches that may have slipped by. He paused and looked around the room. Having said all that, though, I'd like to remind you that you're here because we need you. Every one of you has tested out with the intelligence, courage, and emotional stability that mark you as Cobra material, and I'll tell you frankly that there aren't a hell of a lot of you out there. The more of you that join up, the faster we can start shoving this war down to Troft's throat bladders where it belongs. So, the rest of the day is yours to get settled in your rooms, get acquainted with Frere Complex, he glanced in Viljo's direction and perhaps look through the exhibit halls. Tomorrow morning you are to come back here whenever each of you is ready to give me your decision. Sweeping his gaze one last time around the room, he nodded. Until then, dismissed. Johnny spent the day as Mendro had suggested, meeting his roommates, there were five of them, and walking through the buildings and open-air sections of Freyr Complex. The Cobra Group seemed to have an entire barracks floor to themselves, and every time Johnny passed the lounge area there seemed to be a different collection of them sitting around arguing the pros and cons of joining up. Occasionally he paused to listen, but most of the time he simply continued on his way, knowing down deep that none of their uncertainties applied to him. True, the decision ahead wasn't one to be taken lightly, but Johnny had gone into this in the first place in order to help the people on threatened planets. He could hardly back down simply because it was going to cost a little more than he'd expected. Besides which, he was honest enough to admit, the whole Cobra concept smacked of the superhero books and shows that had thrilled him as a kid, and the chance to actually become someone with such powers was a potent enticement even to the more sophisticated college student he was now. The discussions in his room later that evening went on until lights out. But Johnny managed to tune them out and get a head start on the night's sleep. When Reveille sounded, he was the only one of the six who didn't mutter curses at the ungodly hour involved, but quickly got dressed and went down to the mess hall. By the time he returned, the others, except for Viljo, who was still in bed, had gone for their own breakfasts. Heading upstairs to room C662, he discovered that he was the third of the group to officially join the Cobras. Mendro congratulated him gave him a standard-sounding pep talk, and issued him a genuinely intimidating surgery schedule. He left for the medical wing with a nervous flutter in his stomach, but with the confident feeling that he'd made the right decision. Several times in the next two weeks, that confidence was severely strained. "'All right, cobras, listen up!' Bai's voice was a rumble of thunder in the half-light of Asgard Dawn, and Johnny suppressed a spasm of nausea that the sound and the chilly air sent through what was left of his stomach. Shivering had never made him feel sick before, but then his body had never undergone such massive physical trauma before. What pain remained was little more than a dull ache extending from his eyes all the way down to his toes, and in the absence of that outlet, his system had come up with these other quirks to show its displeasure. Shifting uncomfortably as he stood in line with the other thirty-five trainees, he felt the odd stresses and strains where his organs squeezed up against the new equipment and supports in his body cavity. The nausea flared again at the thought of all that inside him. Quickly he turned his attention back to Bai. "'Rough for you, but from personal experience I can assure you all the post-operative symptoms will be gone in another couple of days.' In the meantime, there's nothing that says you can't start getting used to your new bodies. Now, I know you're all wondering why you're wearing computers around your necks instead of inside your skulls. Hmm. Well, you're all supposed to be smart, and you haven't had much to do the last two weeks except think about things like that. Anyone want to trot out their pet theory? Johnny glanced around, feeling the soft collar-like computer rub gently against his neck as he turned his head. He was pretty sure he'd figured it out, but didn't want to be the first one to say anything. "'Recruit Nofki, sir.' Par Nofki, one of Johnny's roommates, spoke up. "'Is it because you don't want our weapons systems operational until we're off Asgard?' "'Close,' Bai nodded. Moreau, you care to amplify on that?' Startled, Johnny looked back at Bai. Uh, "'Would it be because you want to phase in access to our equipment?' "'weapons and other capabilities gradually instead of all at once?' "'You need to learn how to give answers more clearly, Moreau, "'but that's essentially it,' Bai said. "'Once the final computer is implanted, its programming is fixed, "'so you'll wear the programmable ones "'until there's no danger of you slagging yourselves or each other. "'All right? First lesson is getting the feel of your bodies. "'Behind me, about five clicks, is the old Ordnance Range Observation Tower.' "'Interworld contenders can run that in twelve minutes or so. "'We're going to do it in ten. "'Move!' "'He turned and set off toward the distant tower at a fast run, "'the trainees forming a ragged mass in his wake. "'Johnny wound up somewhere in the middle of the pack, "'striving to keep his steps rhythmic "'as he fought the self-contradictory feeling "'of being both too heavy and too light. Five kilometers was twice as far as he'd ever run in his life, "'at any speed.' and by the time he reached the tower his breath was coming in short gasps, his vision flickering with the exertion. By was waiting as he stumbled to a stop. Hold your breath for thirty-count, the instructor ordered him briefly, moving immediately to the side to repeat the command to someone else. Strangely enough, Johnny found he could do it, and by the time those behind had caught up, both his lungs and eyes seemed all right again. "'Now, that was lesson 1.5,' Bai growled. "'About half of you let your bodies hyperventilate themselves "'for no better reason than habit. "'At the speed you are doing, "'your servos should have been doing 50 to 70 percent of the work for you. "'Eventually your autonomic systems will adjust, "'but until then you're going to have to consciously pay attention "'to all these little details. "'Okay. Lesson 2. Jumping!' We'll start with jumping straight up to various heights, and you'll start by watching me. You haven't got your combat reflexes programmed in yet, and while you won't be able to break your ankles, if you come down off balance and hit your heads, it will hurt. So watch and learn. For the next hour they learned how to jump, how to right themselves in mid-air when necessary, and how to fall safely when the writing methods weren't adequate. After that, Bai switched their focus to the observation tower looming over them, and they learned a dozen different ways of climbing the outside of a building. By the time Bai called lunch break, they had each made the precarious journey up the side and through an unlocked window in the main observation level. And at Bai's order, they returned to the walls to eat, wolfing down their field rations while clinging as best they could ten meters above the ground. The afternoon was spent practicing with their arm servos, with emphasis on learning how to hold heavy objects so as to put minimal stress on skin and blood vessels. It wasn't nearly as trivial a problem as it looked at first blush, and though Johnny got away with only a few pressure bruises, others wound up with more serious subcutaneous bleeding or severely abraded skin. The worst cases, by, sent immediately off to the infirmary. The rest continued training until the sun was brushing the horizon. Another brisk five-click run brought them back to the central complex building where, after a quick dinner, they assembled once more in C-662 for an evening of lectures on guerrilla tactics and strategy. And finally, sore in both mind and body, they were sent back to their rooms.
1: That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Josh Hayes and praise. Thanks and gratitude to Hank Davis, Sarah A. Hoyt, Robert A. Hoyt, and Jacob Hollow. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shahrirad coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.